Last Sunday, I stood here in this very pulpit, and I prayed publicly that God would, that morning, give us $1.4 million in pledges towards freeing the future, that is, debt elimination and beyond, on this building so that we would have all that money that goes into the mortgage for ministry in 1997. I didn't have any particular divine authority for praying for $1.4 million, although I did ask the people who were downstairs before the service, got any numbers? Anybody got any numbers you're praying toward in this regard? And a couple said, well, just that we go over the top. I said, fine, fine. But I, I find that cloud, you know, the cloud in numbers that kind of hovers over the tabernacle and when the cloud moves you move and when the cloud stays you stay i i found the cloud hovering over 1.4 million dollars in my mind my fallible mind and in it still hovers there this morning hovers right over 1.4 million dollars and so as long as the cloud is hovering there for me i'm going to keep praying for that number and when the cloud moves back or forward or sideways I'll pray otherwise. God's response last Sunday was to give us $850,000 in pledges. That's what it is now, after a few more came in. $850,000, which means that between now and uh, October, to pay off this building, we need another $250,000 in pledges. We're not taking anybody's money until it's... All in until there's enough money to pay off the the debt. We're only collecting pledges. And when there's enough money to pay off all the indebtedness of this church, we'll ask for the money. I mean, that when there's enough pledges to do that. So we need $250,000 more than what came in last week. Now, my sense this morning is that what we need to hear from the Lord is a word about this. Here you got your pastor standing in the pulpit praying for $1.4 million and hundreds of people probably praying for $1.1 million, which is what we needed to pay it off. And the Lord answers with $850,000 in pledges. And I, I want to hear from the Lord about that. I want to hear him. Give me a word about what went on last week and what's going on now. And so... That's what we're going to listen to this morning. By the way, just another little piece of information that is interesting and encouraging, I think, is that we have 702 cards. That is, 702 pledge cards came in as of Wednesday, I think, or Thursday. Now, that's amazing. There are only 600 giving units in this church. That is, a unit is like a couple if they have one income and one box and and a single person, one box there. So we got 700 cards and 600 giving units, which means mainly that the children did exactly what we asked them to do. That's what it mainly means, which caused me all the more to say, okay, I got to have a word for the kids this morning, too, because they wrote their $5 or $50 or $30 or $200 and and I told them that God would look at those numbers and multiply it like the Loaves and the fish, and he's going to do it. 
And so when they heard $850,000 instead of $1.1 million, they too have to have a word from the Lord. Now, most of them were in the first service, but some of them are here and you're here and you're just like the kids. You want a word from it as about it as well. So here's the word. Let's open our Bibles to Luke 11. As I prayed and sought the Lord, I believe this word from the Lord Jesus is a word that is appointed for us this morning. Its subject matter is appropriate and its lessons are very needed. Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. We'll listen to the Lord Jesus for two, three minutes as I read it, and then I'll pray that he will help us to understand it and apply it. It came to pass about, I'm sorry, it came about that while we While he was praying, let me stop right there. This teaching of the Lord about prayer, you can see right off the bat, is coming out of his praying. Luke, just for your own meditation and reflection, Luke, the writer of this gospel and Acts, is a a writer who loves to talk about prayer and who loves to highlight the prayer life of Jesus. There are nine prayers of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Seven of them are in no other gospel. That's remarkable, isn't it? That this gospel writer really likes to draw attention to the prayer life of Jesus. And there are more references to prayer than any other gospel. And when you go into the book of Acts, there's prayer all over the place. So if you ever wonder, where can I go to read a biblical writer who just churns with prayer? The answer is go to Luke Acts. Go to Dr. Luke. For some reason, Luke was a man who loved to draw attention to the prayer life of Jesus and the prayer life of the early church. Okay, so he's speaking out of praying here while he was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
Shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Father, we are now bowed in response to this teaching in prayer. In prayer. And we believe what we've just read. That if we ask for the egg of understanding, you will not give us a snake. And so we ask in confidence, loving Heavenly Father, that you would grant every heart in this room a resonating grasp of truth. Oh, may we see what you're saying, Lord Jesus. May our hearts burn within us like they did on the Emmaus Road when you opened the Scriptures. Would you open the Scriptures this morning and apply this text to our need as a church? I ask it for the glory of your name, for the strength of your people, for the ongoing life and ministry of this body through Christ. Amen. What does Jesus have to say to us in our $850,000 in pledges last Sunday from this text? Well, I see four lessons that I want to draw out. And I'll take them one at a time and try to show you where I get them from this text. Lesson number one, prayer is always supposed to be God-centered and God-exalting. Prayer is always supposed to be God-centered and God-exalting. Look at verse two. The disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. And the first thing he does is give them a little sample prayer, a little summary prayer. It's even shorter than the Lord's Prayer in Gospel of Matthew. And in verse 2, he begins it with these all-important words. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. I'll just stop there. Notice two things. Number one, the name of God is the first and main thing to pray about. The name of God is the first and main thing to pray about. Now, I used to think when I read the Lord's Prayer, both this version in Luke and the one in Matthew, that the first three, in Matthew there are three, here there are only two, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, were not requests, but sort of exaltations, sort of, your name is hallowed, your kingdom is coming, kind of praises. Well, that's not the case. They are requests. They are third-person imperatives in the Greek. And you're saying to the Father, O Father, so act as to make this come about. Let this happen. Make this come true. Your name being hallowed in my heart in this city and around the world. So the first and main issue in prayer is to ask that God do something in human hearts to exalt his name. The word hallow would be reverence, treasure, cherish, adore, esteem, set it apart as a, a diamond in an encasement 
to be honored and loved and delighted in. The most valuable thing in the world. Make that happen in my heart about your name. And the word name, reputation and honor. So cause your reputation throughout the world to be cherished. Cause your honor to be embraced and adored. In other words, the whole complex of Godwardness and God-centeredness and and the supremacy of God in all things. Pray that first in every prayer. The, the second thing to observe in that is the word when. When you pray. Or literally, whenever. It's an indefinite word. Whenever you pray, say. And then comes this little Lord's Prayer package. I don't think, do you think, I don't think he means that every time you open your mouth, you're to have a formula, a little formula. You always say the same, same Lord's Prayer formula. Like there's a locked in words. We know that's not the case. There's lots of other prayers in the Bible besides this one. But surely it means at least whenever you pray, say something like that. Whenever you pray, be first of all taken up with the name of God asking that he would exert his power to do something that causes people to hallow, cherish, revere, venerate, treasure that name. Do that, Father. So when I get up on Sunday morning, walk into my study, my bathrobe on, before I kneel down, I try to get awake by praying at the window before I go down. Because I'll fall asleep if I kneel down at 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. <laughs> so I, I stand at the window, and it was snowing at 5 o'clock this morning. It was beautiful out there. Nobody had messed it up yet. And I could see the city, although it wasn't bright and shiny like some mornings. It was through the mist. And I always pray. Always the first thing that I pray is, Oh, Father, first cause John Piper, I pray in concentric circles, cause John Piper this morning, all morning long, till I'm done at about noon, cause me to hallow your name. Help me to cherish it. Help me to love it. Help me to adore it. Help me to exult in it. Help me to love your reputation and your honor and your glory and your majesty more than I love anything. Oh, make yourself the treasure of my life. And then I go out of circle and I say, Oh, Lord, Karsten and Shelley in Boston and Ben in Georgia and Abraham and Barnabas right here through this wall and Talitha in her crib and Noel still sleeping. May when they get up, they sense the love of your name. Cause them, Lord, to hallow your name. And then I spread it out to you. And I pray for the church. And then I spread it out. I look at those. I look at the IDS Tower and the Norwest Tower. And I say, God, let there come awakening in the city to the name of God. Let them love your name. May a passion for your supremacy in all things spread throughout the city. And then I, I try to get my arms around the nations. And I pray a little bit for the nations and the missionaries. And I think of Japan where they're in bed already and the Lord's day's over. I say, oh God, may all the seed sown there for the glory of your name bear fruit this Monday night. Monday morning, early Monday morning. Pray like that. Surely when it says, whenever you pray, pray, hallowed be thy name. You should take the name of God and say, Lord, bless yourself. Bless your name. 
first, in here, out there, all over the world. Now, last weekend, Saturday night, we prayed for a couple hours. Did it strike anybody as strange that, it, that we hardly mentioned money? We prayed about our hearts. We prayed about our church. We prayed about our mission. We prayed down barriers. That's no accident. The people, I didn't plan that. Others did who know God, who know what comes first in prayer. Did it strike you as strange last Sunday morning that I didn't choose a text on money? Let all those who love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be exalted. In other words, last Sunday, though we were going to gather pledges, we all knew, those of us who were in leadership, we knew what the issue was and is and stays and ever will be. The issue is, hallowed be thy name in this church. If we can hallow it more by paying off this building this year, let it be. If we can hallow it more by meaning debt for 20 years, let it be. We have some convictions about that. That's why we've got the goals we do. But the big thing, the main thing is, oh God, at any cost, let your name be hallowed here. Let that mission statement be true. That's lesson number one. I feel that you've learned it well, and I'm thankful. Lesson number two. God answers prayer for penitent sinners, not perfect people. God answers prayer for penitent sinners, not perfect people. Now, before I show you that from this text, let me tell you why I'm mentioning it, why it comes to my mind. Every time a prayer of mine is unanswered, that is, I hear a not yet, or maybe the Lord reveals to me like he did to Paul with the thorn in the flesh, stop praying about that because I'm not going to do it. It wouldn't be good for you if I did it. Whenever something like that happens... I'm prone to ask what sin there is in my life. Right? Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard wickedness, if I'm harboring some sin, if I'm clutching to some idol, if I'm on some trajectory of evil and have no intention of turning from it, the Lord's not going to hear my prayer, according to Psalm 66, 18. So I'm real prone to think, well, wow, we didn't get it. And so, well, maybe there's some big sin in the church. Big, ugly, hidden sin in the body. An aching in the camp. Something like that. You know, that's the way the mind runs, which is entirely possible. However... It's real easy to get perfectly paralyzed like that. To every every time you pray a prayer and it doesn't happen just the way you wanted it to happen, you're paralyzed by your own sense of I must not measure up to God. And then you can't pray anymore. You feel so inadequate and so bad that you don't even want to pray anymore because he said no or he said not yet or something. Happened that made you feel I must just be an utterly unworthy prayer. Now, there is another interpretation that you must hear 
That's the point here. God answers the prayers of penitent sinners, underlined sinners, not perfect people. And if I had time, I would love to take you back to the Old Testament stories and the Old Testament Psalms like Psalm 38 and even last week Psalm 40 and especially Psalm 107. I love the way the long-suffering God hearkens to the prayers of sinners who are in the mire that they created with their own sins. We often think, well, if you've got into trouble and you're trying to get out by calling out to God, well, just remember, you got yourself into that trouble by your own sin. And so don't expect God to come get you out. You know, there are dozens of stories in the Old Testament that tell just the opposite. That say, if you will cry out to God from the mess that you got yourself into by your own rebellion and sin, God will hear you and get you out. Almost all of our messes we got ourselves into by our own sin. That's no obstacle to God if we cry out in mercy for mercy and are penitent. But I don't have time to show you all those stories. So let me show you from this text right here where I'm getting this lesson. Stick with verses 2 to 4 for just a minute. And then we'll look at one other. In verse 2, whenever you pray, say. And then go to verse 4. Whenever you pray, say, forgive us our sins. Whenever you pray, say, forgive us our sins. Which simply means... Every prayer should include a petition for forgiveness. And the only people who pray are sinners. Period. That's the only kind of prayers there are in the world is sinners. Because Jesus said, whenever you pray, say, forgive us our sins. So if there are people who don't have to do that, then Jesus is saying they don't have to pray. If you pray, you're a sinner. You're human. And the only kinds of prayers Jesus hears are the prayers of sinners. That's the only kind he hears. There aren't any other kind. To hear. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, was asked when he was dying, How is it, Martin, with your faith? And he said, we are beggars. It is true. Life of warfare, the cause of the gospel. Few people understood the glorious doctrine of justification by faith and acceptance with God freely on the basis of the blood of Jesus. Few people understood it better than Martin Luther. And after a lifetime at the age of 62 dying, he said, we are beggars. That's all we are is Beggars, it is true. It doesn't really matter about how many relationships we made right last week. You see, two weeks ago, I preached a message saying, let's get ourselves right with each other and right with God so that we walk into last Sunday's pledge time with our hearts right. And I believe God did amazing things that week. I heard of some of them when hard phone calls were made and hard conversations were had and 
and you did as much as it lay within you to do to make a relationship right that had been broken. Not all were healed completely, but some came real close together. Some wonderful letters were written, some wonderful emails were shared, and God did a great thing. But you know, when I came to pray downstairs last Sunday morning, and we, ten of us or so, gathered around, nobody argued with God mainly in those terms. We are all right with you, therefore bring us $1.1 million. What I heard around the circle was, we are beggars. It is true. And we need the cross, and we need the blood, and we need forgiveness, and we love you because you hear the prayers, not of perfect people, but penitent sinners. And that's the only way I'll ever be able to go to the Lord. Look at it in verse 13, just to see it confirmed. If you then, he's talking to his disciples here, being evil, there's the phrase, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that remarkable? So blunt, so unsympathetic and stark. He just kind of looks them right in the eye and says, If you, being evil, John, Peter, James, and they kind of go, We're your disciples. Don't talk to us like that. Don't call us names. It's like calling us stupid. Only worse. Evil. Yuck. Jesus just pulled no punches whatsoever. He was just, he just spoke the truth. John Piper, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to Karsten, Benjamin, Abraham, Barnabas, Talitha, then how much more will I answer you when you pray? That prayer, I mean, those words, along with the, the, uh, Lord's Prayer, teach us this. Everybody in this room is now, and until you die or until Jesus comes, will have within you the remnants of your old nature, your old corruption. We are, in a profound sense, crucified with Christ. We do, in a profound sense, reckon ourselves dead with him. But in another sense, the old nature is always kind of sticking its head up and rearing its neck and asserting itself. And it needs again and again to be reckoned dead. And as long as we are in this life, we will battle with evil. When Jesus said, if you being evil, beloved disciple John, full of love and grace and truth, if you being evil, he meant everybody is evil. That is, has an evil root. Now, we are much more than evil who have the Holy Spirit, who have been born of God and who, who have our sin covered by the blood. But we're not going to kid ourselves. The Lord Jesus has a very sober assessment of us here. Whenever you pray, say, forgive us our sins and you are evil. The only people who pray are sinners. And the only prayers that get answered are prayers made by sinners. Penitent, broken-hearted sinners. We need the Lord. Always we need the Lord. Always we need the blood. Always we need forgiveness. So, when I look back at last week, I do not feel paralyzed thinking, Ah, oh, we must have some terrible sin in the church. I have asked us to search our hearts. I believe we did. I'm going to put the best face on it. 
I'm not going to expect the worst. I'm going to expect the best. We ask for the best. I'm going to expect the best until I get hit in the face with the worst. And therefore, I'm not chalking last week's $850,000 up to my sin or your sin. If it's there, I think God will reveal it and we'll repent of it in due time. But there are other reasons, so we need to move on. Lesson number three. Our Father in heaven never gives us a snake when we ask for a fish. Underline the word, never. Never. Let's read it. Verse 11 to 13. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, Jesus says that us ordinary dads, us imperfect, evil, sinful dads, will will just never, never give our children a snake if they ask for a fish. If my son or daughter says, Daddy, can I have an egg? I do not slip them a scorpion. Never will I slip them a scorpion. Never, never, never. And I'm a sinner. I'm evil. How much more then will your father never do that? We did not get a snake last Sunday. $850,000 in pledges is not a scorpion. It's not a snake. Well, what is it? It's what every father gives. What's good for us. It's good for us. You know, sometimes we get into the thought that... uh, In prayer, we become the father and the father becomes the child. And suddenly we believe that we run the household and we, in this case, that means the universe run the universe. And so if God doesn't answer the way we tell him to, we want to spank him like the child. And we're the father and we told him to take out the garbage or to sweep the kitchen floor or to wash the dishes or to do something in the infirmary, and he didn't do it, and we're in charge here, and we get all uppity. Wait wait a minute. we got to get our heads on straight here. The father is the father. The children are the children. The king is the king. The subjects are the subjects. The wonder is God has ordained to involve us in running the universe. He has, in the mystery of his providence, ordained that our prayers be folded into the fabric of the causality in his own mind. But he's still God and he's still the father. And when children ask their fathers if they can play in the street, they say, not until the praise march. And when they ask if they can have a second piece of chocolate cake, They say, how about a glass of milk instead? And when they say, can I stay up till 12 tonight? 11. That's that's the way fathers deal with children. 
Fathers know what's best for children. Children don't know what's best for fathers. And yet fathers want children to ask for things. And they do things in response to children's requests. So we must be very careful here, lest we put ourselves in the place of the father or in the place of the king. He never gives us a snake when we ask him for a fish. It is amazing. We didn't get a snake and we didn't get a scorpion. We got what was good for us. My deep, deep conviction based on many texts like Romans 8.32 and 8.28 and numerous others. Psalm 84.11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, is that every prayer you make, you either get what you ask for or something that is better for you. Now, that takes a lot of faith, which is why James said, without faith, you're like a wave tossed by the sea when you pray. That is, you think God might be good and then you turn around and you think, well, he really wasn't good. My loved one died and didn't get healed. Didn't get the job I was asking for. Didn't get the 1.1 million last Sunday. Faith says your father is doing something very good for you. That's what faith says. One last lesson. How shall we respond to last Sunday? Lesson four. Persistence in prayer will prevail where giving up won't. Persistence in prayer will prevail where giving up won't. Look at verses 5 to 8. This is a very strange parable, very difficult to deal with this parable, but let's let it hit us anyway, and the Holy Spirit can apply it better than I can probably. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend and he shall go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he shall answer and say, do not bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his Persistence. Now, that word in the Greek, anidia, means shamelessness. It's a totally negative word. I, I got out my big, fat, secular Greek dictionary that I almost never use. And I looked this word up to see, does it have any positive usage anywhere? And it doesn't, as far as I can tell. It's a negative, negative Word. So because of his shamelessness, here he is in the middle of the night banging on this guy's door and he won't stop. It's just a shameless time of day and it's a shameless persistence after he's told him that his kids are in bed. Who knows, they may be sick and he's got to get up early and go to work and it's a shameless thing to do. So that's the word that's used here. Because of his shameless persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, what's the point of that parable? What's the point of that little story? And I think the answer is verses 9 and 10 are the point of that story. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because it will bear fruit. It will work. Keep on doing it. Keep on knocking. 
Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door. Those are present tenses that mean keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. He repeats it three times. Ask, seek, knock. And then he repeats it again by way of promise in the next verse. So verses 9 and 10 give us the point of the story. Namely, if you started knocking and you've got a need, keep on knocking. And if you hear from the inside, not yet, not tonight, don't quit. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Now, this is a shocking parable. I mean, what an image of God, right? Sleep. Guy's kids in bed. Got the door of heaven locked on the inside. He's tired. Wow. <laughs> Not the picture of God I have in my mind. What a story. Jesus is so risky, right, with his language. He's willing to make up stories that I wouldn't make up until I read his, and then I'm, I risk some of my own. So here's he's got this picture of me, the prayer, standing outside knocking because I only have three loaves of bread because I have this guest who came or I have this bank that wants one point million dollars from me. I said, we, I need one point one million dollars because the bank is knocking on the door here and we've got other things with that money we'd like to do. And God says, I'm in bed. I don't want to get up. Now, I don't know if Jesus wants us to picture God that way. I don't know. He didn't, he, he didn't help us not picture God that way. But I suspect if we had him here and we asked him, does that even fit with verse 13? You've got this father who's so ready and eager to give the Holy Spirit to whoever who asked him, who'd never give a snake or a scorpion to his children. He's just on the edge of his seat ready to bless him. That doesn't sound like this guy who's asleep in bed. I think Jesus would say, I think he'd smile, he'd give a big smile, his face it. Oh, got your attention, didn't it? <laughs> and then he'd say, just, just get the point. I got your attention, now just get the point. Well, what's the point? Keep on knocking! And, and then he would say, I think he'd say, you know, when you knock the first time at midnight, and it, and you didn't get to 1.1 million at midnight? There are wild and unimaginable reasons that you could never, ever think. As crazy as picturing God as a sleepy old man in bed with his children in the door lock. That crazy. That wild. You could never imagine why I said not yet last Sunday. But I said not yet. And you don't know why I said it. And you may never know why I said it. The point is, don't let that stop you from knocking. Keep on knocking. That's what Jesus would say. I think if he were here with regard to that strange story. It's a hard lesson to learn, folks, to keep on knocking when God says not yet. Sometimes you don't even know if it's a not yet or just a no, like Paul got a no for his thorn in the flesh. You don't know. This is a hard teaching and a very important biblical teaching. Wesley Duell wrote a whole book about it. Mighty prevailing prayer. A whole book about the need to press in on God. To be like the widow who said, oh, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, I don't, 
I don't give bread to dogs. <laughs> you know, it's just... I mean, Jesus is just saying things all the time that just... Whoa, what is that? And, and instead of saying, okay, you don't give bread to dogs, I'm out of here. I'm a Gentile dog and you don't love me. He's looking at her and she's looking at him. And she says, even the dogs eat crumbs from the table. Wow. You talk about a second knock. Jesus says, you got it. You got it. You win. Knock on. Knock on. Doesn't matter what you hear from inside. I'm asleep. I don't give bread to dogs. Knock on. Knock on. Fight on through. He wants you to do that. There's a chapter in here on this verse. Quotes Andrew Murray like this. Importunity prevailing begins with the refusal to at once accept a denial. I will not accept a denial. It goes to the determination to persevere, to spare no time or trouble till an answer comes. It rises to the intensity in which the whole being is given to God in supplication and the boldness comes to lay hold of God's strength. Like Jacob wrestling all night, I will not let you go until you bless me. There are numerous occasions like Abraham. Would you save him if there were 50 people? I'll save them if you can find 50 people. Oh, Lord, don't get mad. Would you save them if there's 40 people? I'll save them if there's 40 people. Oh, Lord, don't get mad at me again. Would you save them if there's 30? Yes. Would you save them if there's 20? Yes. Would you save them if there's 10? Yes. He couldn't find 10. But God was willing to listen right on in. Just keep on going. Keep on going. Press on in with God. That's the story here. Do not stop knocking for one point. You fill in the blank. Million dollars. Don't stop. You got six months and there are reasons. Let me close with another text. I mean, another reference to an old Puritan friend of mine, uh, Thomas Watson. He, he died 350 years ago, but he's a good friend. And he wrote a book called Body of Divinity. Great book. Everybody ought to have it to look up verses in like I did. I haven't read the whole book, but I've looked up verses in it many, 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 many times. And he asked the question in his section on prayer, which happens to be 250 pages, I think. He said, why does God at times delay? And here are his four answers. Very short and then we're done. Number one, because he loves to hear the voice of prayer. And in his typical Puritan way, he said, you let the musician play a great while before you throw him down money because you love to hear his music. Number two, that he may humble us. Numerous ones of you have said this to me, that you sense that's one of the reasons God didn't do it the way we ask him to do it lest we become presumptuous and think he's at our beck and call and that uh, we can just do it. We can do it. We did our Freeing the Future brochure and we did our home groups and we did it. And God just kind of said, well, it, it, it will probably get done when I'm ready. So you kind of cool it, settle down, trust, keep knocking. But number three... He delays because 
At times, his people are not ready or fit for the mercy we seek. A holy life is like a puzzle. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You don't, when you put a jigsaw puzzle together, you work from the edges. If, if you're smart, you work from the edges. You do the border first and, and then you, you, you don't plop a piece in the middle and spend all your time looking for the piece that fits onto that little knob. You, you gotta get some things in place before a piece fits. And that's the way it is in life. God looks down and he says, okay, I'm going to do this $1.1 million thing and debt elimination thing, but I got about 800 pieces of this puzzle to put in place. And this sermon may have been one of them. Okay? I think it is one of them. And then there are others. And there's just pieces that God's going to put in place. And as he puts the pieces in place and we keep knocking, we keep knocking, he puts the pieces in place. And when it's ready, then he goes and he does it. Finally, he delays so that the mercy, when it comes, will be more prized. So my conclusion is when, um, if you love the Lord and if you believe this word from him in Luke 11 and if you care about Bethlehem, would you simply join me in mighty prevailing prayer? Don't let last Sunday's night or last Saturday night's prayer be a flash in the pan. Don't let the the laying hold of the Lord that you did in recent days be the end of it. Just do what Jesus says to do. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. He has his reasons and he will bless. Let's pray. Lord, I commend this word to your people and ask that you would bless it. Cause it to take root I'm sure right now hundreds in this room are applying it to situations in their lives very different from our church situation. And I'm so glad that they are. Would you help them apply it? Help them see what you are saying to them in the delays of their lives. Glorify yourself. Endear us to you in this childlike enterprise of Asking and seeking and knocking and trusting. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.